We have been really, really focused on wedding dresses. We see the wedding dress and the bride as this beautiful entry point into the wedding industry at large. And we know that there are pain points around bridesmaids dresses and mother of the bride dresses and flower girl dresses and and fit and custom fit for for women overall as well and so that's always been the the blue sky mission long term but we've not thought about any of that this year really really just buckle down on making sure we have an amazing experience that makes sense for custom wedding dresses and that's been that's been the big focus Leslie Voorhees Means didn't set out to be an entrepreneur, but when she started experiencing frustration finding an affordable wedding dress, she realized there had to be a better way. She took the leap and co-founded Anomaly, the internet's best place to fully customize the wedding dress of your dreams without breaking the bank. After quitting her job at Apple back in November of 2016, she launched the Anomaly website with three different designs, including her own wedding dress, and the rest is history. Coming up, you'll hear how a personal frustration led Leslie to co-found Anomaly with her husband, realizing that many women shared her pain point and how she felt when quitting her job at Apple to take the leap. Why launching isn't about having a flashy marketing campaign or a perfect website, but rather nurturing a real connection with your customer base. How Anomaly virtually brings the often emotional experience of buying your wedding dress to their customer. The impact of COVID-19 on the bridal industry and how Anomaly has focused on connecting with their brides-to-be with empathy and authenticity. Raising venture capital for Anomaly and how she deals with the expectations that comes with their choice. Why working from home has allowed their team to hone in and only focus on important initiatives the difficulty of having a work-life balance while building your company, combined with the added factor of working with your significant other, the biggest lessons Leslie has learned this year, and finally, why your friends are your best focus group. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to learn more about your journey and entrepreneur story. Thanks so much for having me. So I know you started your company, Anomaly, out of a personal frustration the challenge of finding an affordable wedding dress. Please share with me that aha moment you had and when was it? Yeah, so it was actually never my dream or aspiration to become an entrepreneur. Like you said, this was grown out of just my own frustration with finding my wedding dress. And my background and experiences in engineering and manufacturing and so when I got engaged at the time I was working in China quite a bit and went shopping for my wedding dress in America and, and was just really 
horrified by the experience for two big reasons. One, it was very, very expensive. And you know, looking at the price tags, this would have been the most expensive garment, expensive thing I would have ever purchased. And then second, on the same token, I was also very particular about what I wanted. I was being really picky and couldn't quite find what I what I wanted. And I was working for Apple at the time and flying over to China basically once a month. And in the Shanghai area, there's really amazing custom garment expertise. A lot of my coworkers who were men got custom suits and shirts made for them. And, and I thought maybe I'll just find someone to, to make my wedding dress and did a little bit of research and actually got way more than I bargained for because I found the city nearby Shanghai actually makes it's like 80% of the world's wedding dresses. It's this amazing supply chain hub of, of expertise and craft and generations of you know knowledge about silk and garment making. And there's actually 100,000 people within four square miles that are involved in the bridal supply chain in Suzhou. So I visited and was just completely enamored. Also was impressed that as an individual rather than a business at the time, could walk up to one of the workshops and pick out all the elements that I wanted and partnered directly with them to make my dress. So I, I made my wedding dress with one of the workshops there and was very impressed by the price, but also the end result, which was all the elements that I wanted. The, the dress was made to my body, so I didn't have to worry about tailoring. And then the, the quality was outstanding. And so mentioned it to a couple friends and almost immediately engaged friends were begging me to you know ma- make their dresses next time i i went over to china and then a week passed and it was friends of friends cold emailing me and then another week passed and it was friends of friends of friends and so it was very clear that other women were feeling this same frustration as me and so did some digging into the wedding industry, which is a, a fascinating, broken, but amazing market and decided it was compelling enough to go all in and quit my corporate job and really try this out given it's, uh, it's the, the pain point was resonating with other women just like me. What day was that that you quit your job? It's November 4th, um, 2016. So it was almost exactly four years ago. And there was maybe a month of maybe this can be a side hustle and I can still keep the safety and salary of my corporate job. And this can be just something on the side. But it was, for me, it was thinking about the risk. It wasn't as much about the financial risk of like, what if this fails? The risk really became, what if I don't give this my all of my attention and time and the risk would be I would look back and think that I you know didn't go after this big opportunity that was staring me in the face and so that was yeah four four years ago how long were you doing both oh maybe like one month or something it did not last long and and ultimately I was thinking about when I was working on Anomaly, it wasn't even called Anomaly at the time. I was feeling a little bit guilty that I was taking time and mind share away from Apple. And then when I was working on my Apple job, it was, you know, dreaming about Anomaly. And so really I was just not doing very well at either job. So I had to commit and decided to jump all in. 
And do you remember the day that you quit? Were you scared? What did you say to your boss? How did yeah, you do it? The conversation with my boss went really well. I think it was it was probably like a shot where you're like um, like a flu shot where you're really worried going up and up into it, and then the anticipation is awful, but then the shot itself isn't that bad. My my team was extremely supportive. They could tell that this was something that I was really passionate about, and also you know said if this thing fails, you can always come back. And so it was nerve wracking up until that point. But once I decided to take the plunge, there was so much to think about. It was like I didn't have enough space or, you know, time to to be stressed out. It was just busyness right away. And what was the first thing that you did on your, you know, first day? You're not at Apple anymore. Yeah, it was talking to a lot of customers because we already had customers by that point. It was, again, like women that were asking me, when's when's the next time you're going to China? Would the workshop be able to make something like this? And so it was just a lot, a lot of conversations with women and hearing their stories and why they didn't enjoy purchasing their, their dress in a boutique. And which I would, I would recommend to your listeners as well. It's not about a flashy marketing campaign or even a beautiful website. Our first website was terrible. It was built by me. It was, I mean, we didn't have any photos of, of dresses. We had three samples, one of which was my own wedding dress because that was the first anomaly dress. And we coaxed our, a couple of our friends were soul cycle instructors. And so they were beautiful and had amazing bodies and also, you know, were willing to do this for free. And so we just took pictures of them on the streets of San Francisco to put on our original website and did not invest at all really in strong content or assets. This was actually before my wedding as well. So my mom, I remember the the night before my wedding, she was peeling gum off of the train of my wedding dress because it had been worn around the streets of San Francisco for a photo shoot because it was our best, you know, best garment at the time. And I ended up wearing it used on on my wedding day, but got to be scrappy in the early days. And, you know, I, I think it's really about conversations with the customer and making sure that you're, especially for me, making sure that my experience was similar or potentially very different than other women rather than building the entire experience just around my, my pain point. And what is the business model of Anomaly and how has it evolved over the past four years? Yeah, the, I mean, the original business model is still very similar to what we have today, which another interesting thing that I noticed as women were coming, saying that they can't quite find what they want, they were asking for almost the same dress, almost the same wedding dress, because wedding dresses look very, very similar. They're a uniquely low variable garment. It's white or ivory. There's lace. There's no lace. There's a couple different necklines, a couple different silhouettes. And so operationally, to me, it was really interesting because here's this great use case for mass customization, which hasn't really been cracked yet, especially for women. And with wedding dresses, given their low variable, there are these components that can be customized, but from a core group of fabrics and laces and materials, and actually being able to be really nimble on the supply chain side, which is my you know background and expertise, by being really involved at the supply chain level, you can combine you know these few options into many, many, many permutations and combinations of dresses and have a, you know, a flexible model to make whatever dress a bride can imagine. And my background is not 
fashion design as much as I'd like to be. That sounds very glamorous, but women were coming saying exactly what they wanted and what they needed was operational expertise. They needed a trusted hand at the factory to, to make the dress and execute on it. And so that was, those were the original customers and that's still very much a part of who we are today. Custom and customization is in our DNA. What we've found over time over these past four years though is not all women want a custom dress. In fact, I think many women don't even think go into wedding dress shopping, I really want a custom dress. They want the right dress, they want the perfect dress, they want a beautiful dress that fits them well, that has, you know, they don't want to settle for the design. And so we've been thinking about how we can decrease the number of options that in reality we really can execute on any any design, but it's more about how do we create a, a, an experience that's online that can capture all of the ideas from brides and make this dress that she wants without being too intimidating or too too much of a process given you know it's 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 a high touch long lead time kind of operation so we're trying to simplify that we we just launched a our first ready to wear line which we've always done made to order fully custom but this is more like the best of and in reality we've been using this four years worth of data to smartly merchandise what our first line is because again, wedding dresses are low, low variable. And even given tons and tons of options, women ultimately end up choosing very similar dresses and there's clear trends. And so we're using those trends to fuel the uh, collection line. So over time, we want to keep these two, these two customer processes. If you want to go fully custom, or if maybe that's not quite for you, you need fewer options. Here are our recommendations best of based on the dresses that we are selling in the bespoke route. What are the price points of your dresses? Yeah, so very attainable, achievable. The average wedding dress, the, the bulk of the dollars in the market is in the two to $5,000 range and custom dresses can be $10,000 or more. So that was the original price tags that gave me some sticker shock when I was shopping. And so it was always part of the equation to make sure that this was an attainable price point for a lot of women. So our bespoke Route is starts at eighteen hundred and averages really right right around two thousand or under. So still very attainable, especially for a fully custom garment that's made to your body. And then we just launched the collection, and all of those dresses are thirteen ninety nine. That's amazing. So I have not gone through this process for me personally, but I have had a lot of friends who have gotten married, and this part of the process is very, very important and emotional. How are you bringing this, you know, has traditionally very, you know, in-person experience, very emotional experience and bringing that online? Yeah. And it's, it's a great call out. And it is something we think about every single day is this is, this is a very important purchase for women. This is very emotional. It's very involved. We have to get it right every time. It has to be perfect. That's what keeps me up at night is this has to be right every single time. And I think the, the question really is, do you need that moment of this is my wedding dress to be in a boutique, in a store. I think there's, you know, uh, like the show Say Yes to the Dress. I think a lot of women come in with this expectation that it's going to be this lightning bolt from on high that once you try on the dress and your mom starts crying and everyone's happy. And for some women, that is the, the case when they go to a boutique. But what we find is that a lot of women don't have that and feel a little bit lost when they don't, don't feel that. 
what's most important for us is making sure that we understand who the bride is, what will look good on her, what she wants in her wedding dress, and serve her well, which is exactly why we've built up a strong stylist uh, team. We're never going to automate away the human connection part of it. What's serving us really well right now during COVID when boutiques, a lot of boutiques are closed is, you know, our our process has been set up virtually since day one and we've been investing in making that also very special. So all of our consultations with stylists are, are via Zoom and we can, you know, react to her photos or what she's, you know, her style preferences that she's talking about. A lot of moms and friends will join the Zoom appointments too. And so it, you know, it's, it's really about just gathering up the the most important elements and then delivering on that ultimately with product. And then the say yes to the dress moment is when you receive your dress and try it on and, you know, see, see this beautiful garment that was made exactly for you with all of the elements all together. And so it's, it's definitely, you know, a new process for a lot of women and new and different and kind of crazy, but you know, that there were a lot of people that thought buying your mattress online was crazy or books or eyeglasses or any of these other categories. And so we're thinking that if, as long as we can deliver an amazing experience, it doesn't have to be in a store. Coming up, you'll hear how COVID-19 has impacted the wedding industry this year and why Anomaly is preparing to capitalize on the pent-up demand that is growing. You mentioned that your business was prepared to operate in Zoom, which is what we've all had to adjust to in 2020. But tell me more about how your business was impacted by COVID. Yeah, I think the the biggest thing for us right now is weddings are not happening. (laughs) There are a lot of weddings on hold right now. And actually in the earlier days of COVID, like March, April, May, it was really focusing on our supply chain and making sure that we could still safely deliver all of the dresses that we had committed to. And being really involved in our supply chain and our, our workshops, we were able to deliver all of our dresses on time and continue you know, that customer process. And so the first half was really thinking about that. And now the second half, I think, is really about staying connected to our brides who have had to reschedule schedule their wedding date by now likely twice because the the gals that we were talking to in the earlier half of the year you know had had rescheduled to late 2020 and then you know I, I think the summer came and a lot of brides rescheduled till 2021 and so it's staying in touch being supportive being empathetic all of our stylists are people too and everyone's lives are impacted and so sometimes I think it's just about being an ear or a sounding board for brides because wedding planning right now is pretty crazy and then from from the business side it's I mean, it's crazy. Our, our revenue's down right now, given I think a lot of brides are, are waiting to feel certainty about their 2021 wedding dates with which with the vaccine, you know, certainty and effectiveness, it looks like hopefully that will start to pick up. Holidays are always really, really good for us. So, but thinking strategically about next year, I think there is going to be something really interesting happening, given there is this buildup, pent up demand. There's going to be two, two and a half years worth of weddings that are going to be 
you know, unlocked very quickly. And so for us, it's thinking about how can we set ourselves up best to capitalize on this. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think back to our assumptions around brick and mortar being disrupted. Most, most wedding dresses are still purchased in a brick and mortar boutique. And given we're betting very much on this online process, given we can give brides a better price and better body inclusivity and more design options, we're able to do that. We're only able to do that because we don't carry inventory and we're online. So the hope is that this shakeup in bridal is going to happen actually very quickly. You can kind of see it, I think, in other areas of retail as well with people's buying behavior has, has changed and COVID has accelerated that. And so my expectation, hope, is that that will also carry over into bridal. People are going to be more open to purchasing their dress online, especially given it just doesn't seem as reasonable to you know, f- fly to Kleinfeld's in New York with grandma to try on dresses. Like, I don't know if that's going to happen next year. And I think a lot of the brick and mortar boutiques are going to have to rethink their model very quickly. And again, we've been set up and betting on a remote process on an online process since day one and investing in visualization and helping brides have more certainty about this purchase. And so we feel um, pretty confident and it's just about holding on until, you know, weddings start to pick back up again. I know you raised uh, money for this business. At what point in the process did you make the decision, okay, I'm going to have to go out and raise money and, and how did you decide how much you needed to raise? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's it's something that every entrepreneur needs to think about on an individual basis. What are the needs of the business? Why do I need to bring on capital? So for, and what type of capital? Because there's, you know, I think people just immediately think about venture capital, but there's other ways to, to fundraise. For us, it was always about this really big vision. I think a lot of e-commerce companies would be better suited to bootstrap and get to profitability right away. And for us, it was always about a little bit more than just disrupting bridal. I think bridal is this amazing use case for the application of technology in fashion e-commerce. And there's applications outside of just bridal with what we're working on in terms of mass customization and also fit and making sure our garments fit perfectly, tapping into the wedding industry at large. And so given it was this big vision, we knew we wanted to raise venture capital. There are trade-offs, of course, in terms of how much equity you get to keep of the company. But for us, we, you know, we wanted to hire engineers. We wanted to hire data scientists. We, we wanted to go after this big thing and needed a lot of capital in order to be able to take on a lot of the people part of it. So that was something we had been thinking about since day one. But I think it's something, especially in the early days of the business, something entrepreneurs should definitely think through is what what are the needs? What do I need? What do what's my end, you know, vision for this given with venture capital, there's also expectations just based on the way the industry is set up that it's 50, 100x returns. And so you have to be thinking big and you're held accountable for, for big growth. And if that's not the, the direction that you, you know, want to go with the business, there's nothing wrong with that. There's other capital, there's debt, there's, you know, angel investors. So I, I think it's, it's really about thinking about what, what's best for your, for your customers and for your business. How big is your team now? 
We are 35 people. So we've got engineering and product team and then uh, supply chain side production over in Hong Kong and then a very small marketing operations. And then our stylist team is what makes up that, that group. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. How has your role evolved since you started? Now you have all this support from these team members. So what do you focus on each day? Yeah. I mean, in the early days, I was the supply chain team. Since then, we've, again, hired up experts in in Hong Kong. We have the ex-director of supply chain for David's Bridal, so has just amazing knowledge and, and contacts. And But in the early days, it was it was me on the ground in in China in our workshops, shepherding every single dress. And so that was really the first year was me watching and manufacturing every single of the first probably 500 dresses. And so it was a lot of time in China. It was a lot in the details and the the nitty gritty of the dresses and what customers' expectations were. It was learning the hard way when we didn't quite get it right and hopping on a plane to go back to China to make it right when we when we did miss the mark. So that was really the first year. And then since then, it, it kind of depends on what's happening with the business. So when we were fundraising for our Series A, that was almost a full-time job was fundraising. And even when we're not fundraising, investor relations and making sure that we're staying in touch with our investors is, uh, is a big part of the job. And then right now, my, my co-founder and I, who's also, he's my husband, which is another thing I wasn't ever expecting to be doing this with, um, with my partner, but he and I are are able to swap responsibilities fairly easily given it's all we talk about and and think about all day long every day. So right now I am managing the basically like the variable labor part of our model. So it's the stylus and the production. And my co-founder is more creative and thinking about the the experience on, on the site. And so it's the engineering and tech team and marketing that he's managing. So that's how we have it divided up. But my team will probably admit that we we switch that around quite a bit just based on what, you know, where we see the biggest needs are with, with the team and, and switch it up quite a bit. And what is that like working with your husband? What tips do you have for anyone listening who is also thinking of starting a business with their significant other or are currently doing it? Yeah, well, I wouldn't necessarily recommend. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no, I. It's. I, I think it's interesting because it, it feels slightly more common now. Not maybe not as crazy. I, starting starting a company is all encompassing. All like it's it's all you. It really is all you think about and and live and breathe every day. So, I I I can't imagine doing this without without my partner just given it's like so much time and and energy so i think also what works with my husband Callie and I is that we have very different backgrounds and and strengths that balance each other out. So my background is engineering, manufacturing, supply chain operations. His is again like on the creative side, marketing, people management, and so we've we've always been able to have really clear lanes and where we can help each other and step out of the way in in other cases. And so I think 
also like the core of what makes a strong co-founder and looking at successful co-founder teams, you have to know your co-founder really, really well. You have to, you have to trust them deeply. You have to have really, really good communication. It's kind of all the, all the fundamentals of a good co-founder partnership is the same as marriage. You have to be able to like, you know, raise issues when you see them and, and the trust and communication and all of that. So I think it's actually can be a great solution if it's something that you know, both of you can commit to. It's it's worked well for us. Do you have rules where it's like after X time, we're not allowed to talk about business? <laughs> We've tried to implement that, but we end up not, like not having anything to talk about. It's kind of depressing, but it's like, well, what else are we going to talk about? This is all, all we, you know, all we're living and breathing right now. <laughs> <laughs> and looking back at everything you've learned over the last four years, is there anything you wish you could go back and tell yourself? Oh gosh. I mean, I am really, not, not to say that there were not many mistakes, daily mistakes, but I think part of what makes a resilient founder is just having blinders on for the future and being able to charge ahead. And so it's very rare that I'm, you know, reflecting back and wondering, oh, I wonder, I wish I would have done it one way or the other. So I, I, that being said, I think there are a lot of, you know, lessons to give future founders or, you know, me to keep in mind really around, I think the, just the, the focus on, on the goal at hand, but yeah, I, I can't think of, uh, well, I'll give, I'll give one, which is being able to test out your idea in a fast and easy way, I think is really, really important, which we did some parts of that and, and some parts not as well, but keeping the team really lean and tight. I think once you get venture capital, there's a expectation or a temptation to hire very quickly. And hiring is so, so important. The people that make up your company, that's, that's everything. And so being able to, and we, we've made mistakes on hiring. And I think the, what's helped us succeed is that we're, we are decisive. And so if someone's not working, then we make the decision to part ways very quickly, but that can also be very tumultuous. So potentially taking more time to bring someone on in like a contractor capacity or getting to know them really, really deeply before making that call. We were just charging ahead so fast and again, have, have made some mistakes, but have tried to learn from that really quickly as well. Do you have any tried and true interview questions that you typically ask? I, th I love the, what I've done and, and now we have like a little bit more of a process where I'm the last person to talk to candidates. I go in and say, what questions do you have for me? And I don't ask any questions to them at all. By the time a candidate reaches me, we've tested, you know, culture fit and, and whether their capabilities are what we need right now. And so I, I trust the, the team for that part. And I'm just kind of curious, really, if they understand the mission of Anomaly and what Anomaly is all about. And, and if someone comes in and doesn't have any questions for the CEO or founder, then maybe it's not quite the right fit. But I've, I've liked that approach recently. And the people that we bring on have tons of questions about our business model, about what the future is going to be, about, you know, what it was like in the early days. Like, I think that natural curios curiosity is what I'm really attracted to. And what is the culture like at Anomaly? Yeah, we, I mean, it is, it's easy to have 
really happy days at Anomaly. I mean, weddings are the, the best. And even though weddings aren't happening right now, because usually it's like the wedding photos coming back, that's the most fulfilling part. I think it's fulfilling for, for everyone because it's very tangible. The results of your hard work is like this, this woman wearing our product on the happiest day of her life. It's like, I never get sick of it. So more recently, it's been more about the, the try-on photos and, and women reacting to getting their dresses. And so we really try and celebrate that every day. Our Slack channel is like almost constantly just photo, 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 like copying reactions from brides, copying reviews from brides. And, and then also if, you know, if we miss the mark learning from, you know, a, a subpar unboxing experience. And so we, yeah, we try to embody that, that celebration for sure. And then I think the other big part of our culture is just, again, a curiosity or thinking about how to be our, we have um, five anomaly vows is what we call our like company culture. So one of our vows is uh, we are solutions oriented. And so thinking about a different way to approach a problem is something we try and instill and build up with, with our entire team, especially given that this is like a brand new distribution channel. Like again, almost all wedding dresses are still bought in stores and we're doing something a little bit crazy. And so thinking outside the box, thinking about what the customer wants and working your way backwards from that and thinking about, you know, turning it over in different ways to make sure that we're building an experience that makes sense is definitely part of our culture that we, we try and, and uh, maintain. I love that you call your values vows. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. How are you keeping the team together right now with everyone working remotely? Do you have any tips to share on how to keep the culture alive? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's tough. It's really tough right now. I think part of it is just acknowledging like Zoom meetings are not the same as normal meetings. Zoom happy hours are not the same as normal happy hours. And, and just, I mean, I'm like almost always incredibly optimistic. And so I think it's part, part of, part of the challenge for me as a leader is like, how do I stay authentic to that? But also acknowledge that everyone's dealing with this in different ways. And it is hard to make those connections with the team virtually. So really, I mean, I think hearing out every individual team member and understanding that they're potentially having a different day than you. And then I, I think just because our team in particular has worked together for so long, we've done okay with remote. And I think the team's enjoying the, the remote work. So it's been a shift to, you know, really get our act together in terms of organization, documentation, prioritization. It's like, you really have to make sure that everyone's on the same page. You can't just you know, run over to someone's desk and ask them a question. And so I think from a business perspective, it's been really good because it's forced us to focus on only the, you know, the initiatives that are the most important right now and get alignment across the team and, and, and really get to know people a little bit deeper. I mean, you're seeing people's homes and kids and dogs in the background. And it's been, you know, it's been hard, but I think also really wonderful from like uncovering, you know, more layers in, in people's personal lives. You know, it's, it's been hard. This year has been hard, but I think a really wonderful way to get to know people on a, on a deeper level. And I think everyone's working really hard to make connections virtually, given it is a little bit harder. So it's ultimately, I think, been a really good thing for our team. Up next, why Leslie prefers to think about work-life boundaries rather than work-life balance and the different ways she tries to achieve this. 
Leslie, what does a typical day outside of work look like for you? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have much of a life. I don't have much work-life balance. So even weekends, days off are still thinking about the business. So I, I think it's hard to have I think it's entrepreneurs should go into starting a company with an open mind about, about work-life balance. Your, you know, your company is your life. And if that scares you, you should maybe consider if you, if you want to start a company, especially if it's venture backed, you know, if you're trying to prioritize anything above your company, which includes, I mean, for, for me being a good sister or daughter or daughter-in-law, it's going to be, I think, hard, especially in the early days, just given it's so all encompassing to, you know, to prioritize anything above, above the company. I will say, I believe I'm more on the work-life balance boundaries. I don't know if there's such thing as balance, but boundaries, which I think having alignment with yourself around what your expectations are for what's fulfilling for you, which I love my work and I love building a company and then also alignment with your partner, making sure your partner's on board. You know, for me personally, what that's meant is delaying having kids until, you know, we're a little bit older, starting a family. So buying a home. But this is what both my co-founder, who's my husband and I want for our lives right now. And then we can think about reprioritizing as we go along. What do you do when you're not working? (laughs) Not much of anything. We joke that when we try to have date night and like, okay, we're not going to talk about anything with the business tonight. And then ultimately, you know, we don't have a lot to talk about given we love, we love talking about brides and the challenges that we're facing with the business. And so when, you know, when we really try and take, take time off, it's usually spending time with friends and family or travel, which in 2020 has been difficult to adjust, definitely adjusted, but we've really enjoyed like going to national parks and RVing a little bit, being a little bit more outdoorsy and adventurous. So plus it's, it's, it's nice to just get fresh air and step away for um, a couple days that can be very inspiring as well. Has this year brought any major lifestyle changes or lessons learned? Yeah, lessons learned for us strategically, definitely a big focus on profitability, which was not really on our roadmap. You know, it sounds silly when you say it, but a lot of venture-backed companies are focused on growth and showing traction and an L-shaped graph. And and it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's definitely been an adjustment, but I think really helpful for us too, because it's forced us to focus on what's important. And and 2020 has been hard, but given we have to strip away all of this excess and only spend money on what really, really matters, that move I think has helped us clarify our experience for our brides as well. What are the th- things that you said no to or realized wasn't important this year? Yeah, any expansion into other product lines. Um, so we have been really, really focused on wedding dresses. We see the wedding dress and the bride as this beautiful entry point into the wedding industry at large. And we know that there are pain points around bridesmaids dresses and mother of the bride dresses and flower girl dresses and and fit and custom fit for for women overall as well and so that's always been the the blue sky mission long term but we've not thought about any of that this year really really just buckle down on making sure we have an amazing experience that makes sense for custom wedding dresses and that's been that's been the big focus 
And I know you are working around the clock, but do you have any inspiring books or podcasts that you've read lately? Yeah, I've gotten really into Audible this year and I didn't realize how much time I had first thing in the morning and also when I'm going to bed. So, you know, getting ready in the morning and then also winding down. And so I've tried to replace time on Instagram or TV with audible biographies. I'm really loving historical biographies right now. I think listening to more like nonfiction business books always felt like a little bit exhausting at the end of the day. And, and then fiction felt maybe frivolous. So I've been loving hearing stories about, you know, historical leaders in particular, given a lot of the, you know, older ones read like fiction. I mean, George Washington's life was very, very different than mine, but it's still really captivating. And I think there's still really good lessons. I think that's been really fun and want to stick with that for a little while. It's versus like finding time to sit down and actually read a book, just listening to it on Audible has been great. Is there anything our audience would be surprised to learn about you? Surprised to learn about me. I, I'm highly introverted. I think there's maybe an assumption that CEOs, you know, visionaries have to be really extroverted and get a lot of energy from being around lots of people. And I definitely, that's definitely not the case with me. I think I do a good job moonlighting as an extrovert, but I think that's also the really special, cool thing about starting your own company is you can help drive the culture to fit what makes sense to you as a leader. So I guess for me, practically one, one example is I have a, have a really hard time reacting real time in meetings to when new ideas are being presented. I, it takes me probably a full 24 hours to absorb and like turn over ideas in my brain. And my team knows this about me too. And so our meeting culture is not as much about getting reactions and being heard in meetings versus presenting the ideas, presenting the data, making sure everyone's there. And then the real decisions happen outside of meetings. And I think, you know, I think just uh, being aware of your blind spots or being aware of, it's not about like molding you into a specific vision for a leader, but understanding what makes you tick and and what helps or potentially hinders your leadership and, and vision and crafting your your company culture to to help get you know the best out of everyone. I can totally relate. I'm definitely an introvert and people are always surprised to learn that I am an introvert and not an extrovert. Do you have a favorite mantra or quote that defines your work ethic or values and why? Favorite mantra. I don't I don't have anything that's lasted the, um, you know, over time, given there's like different challenges or different focuses based on what we're facing with the business. I think maybe something that I embrace overall is just tons and tons of optimism. I think it's so easy to get trapped feeling stressed out or feeling negative or worrying about unknowns with so many things. And it just seems like you can have, you can play a trick on your brain to, to see stress as a good thing because you care a lot or worrying about the business also because you care a lot about it. And so I think this, this unwavering optimism has been something I've always really, really embraced and has helped craft my, I think, leadership and, and values as a leader. Is there anything you wish you knew sooner with starting the business, 
I mean, there's always lessons to be learned, but it's, I think that's part of the founder journey too, is not having all of the right answers and, and figuring it out along the way. That's like the beautiful, the beautiful challenge and the beautiful stress, but also like this, this ownership. I think one, one tip that I would give to founders though, is they're like starting out is, which I've heard other founders articulate really well is, is great companies just start. They don't necessarily launch. So companies see this customer need and immediately start solving it versus trying to over optimize on anything other than talking to your customers. So that could be investing money into like some sort of big splashy marketing launch or time and attention to things that may feel productive, but might not necessarily be productive, like creating a business plan or building a financial model or networking too much. I think all of those could potentially be a distraction from what I think is the most important thing, especially in the early days, which is conversations with your customers or potential customers. And thinking back to how Anomaly started, I mean, it was a lot of individual conversations, me with our our brides or potential brides. And I think as an operator, there was a little bit of friction and thinking like, oh, this is, how will this scale? How will this, you know, make money? How will we, you know, figure out this experience on a, on a mass level, given it, it felt small because they were just conversation by conversation by conversation. But I do think that that is so, so valuable in the early days to understand who your customers are, what pain points are resonating, what's not. I mean, again, Anomaly was out of my own frustration, but what elements made sense to, you know, dozens of brides versus just me. So having that focus and not necessarily thinking about, you know, the need to fundraise or have the perfect pitch deck or have this, the perfect uh, website. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense for all companies to, to think about that. And, and rather I would encourage people to just continue talking about, talk, talk to your, talking to your customers and iterating on your product and experience. Have you had any mentors in the industry over the years? I mean, so uh, in my life before a founder, I was an engineer manufacturer. So I've had some, I have had some really great managers over the years. And I've found overall that people, managers or other strangers potentially always are open to helping people and feel good about helping people. So I've had, you know, a number of interesting, helpful influencers in that regard. And then I think for where I am now on the founder journey, other founders have always brought just a, a wealth of experience and, and knowledge and humanity to starting a company, community and, and empathy given it's such a, it's such an individual and sometimes very lonely experience. So being able to just talk to other founders that have been in a similar journey with, with lessons or just to be a sounding board has always been really, I think, helpful, valuable, affirming to me, and then, you know, helpful with practical expertise too. So when it comes to communicating with your board or, you know, looking for different ways to raise capital and, and those tactical things too, the founder network has, has always been wonderful. And I think the, the great thing is that people pay it forward too. So as people have been helpful to me, I, you know, try and be helpful to, to younger founders and there's, you know, the generations of, of founders helping each other, which I've seen a lot of evidence of. 
Yes, I definitely can agree with that. I love helping other entrepreneurs. Uh, what are you grateful for each day? Oh, right now, probably health. And I mean, 2020 has brought up a lot of conversations around what matters now. And I say that, you know, we were talking about work-life balance, but thinking about the next couple years of, of our life, my husband and I, like what, what matters most, investing in relationships, showing up for people when it really matters. So definitely thankful for you know, our health and then also family's health forces you to really think about that. But I think it also, like, what a great time to be appreciative and, and show gratitude towards those, those relationships. If you could give our entrepreneurista audience one last essential business tip, what would it be? I mean, I think, I think the early days in in thinking about how to have conversations with your customers and and really understand what like what your company is trying to solve is important and doing that in an fast and inexpensive way is also really important and so you know i mentioned great great companies don't launch they just start you know i i think there are a lot of really scrappy ways that you can test and iterate without needing to raise money without needing to buy inventory, without needing to bring on an expert. I, I, we push our employees really hard at our company, you know, on practical training. So, you know, oh, I'm not an SEO expert, but it's like, no, anyone can be, understand enough to be dangerous with SEO. There's so many resources out there online. And again, talking to your networks and other founders that you might know, people are willing to help, people want to help. And so being scrappy around building up that expertise outside of, you know, having that on your resume or or delaying a start to a a business given you don't necessarily know a lot about a certain topic. Don't let that be an excuse. Test out the ideas as, as quickly and cheaply as you can. And also like your friend network can be a great group to test out on. If your friends aren't buying your product or vibing with your product, strangers probably won't. So what a great place to, you know, to, to test out ideas until you feel really good about going after an idea. Thank you for sharing that. And lastly, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Being an entrepreneurista for me is, I think, about perseverance and resilience and resilience as a muscle. I think it's something that you can can flex and and practice and i think those qualities make up more than again a certain resume a certain skill set practical you know job experience there are a million reasons reasons or or excuses not to necessarily start something but if you've got that grit and determination that can help you double down on what could be a really good big idea, which, which will inevitably sound a little bit crazy in the beginning. It, you know, like renting out your sofa to strangers is now, you know, the most successful IPO of 2020 or for us buying wedding dresses online, which no one does. If an idea sounds obvious and good, it's probably because the market is too competitive or it's an idea that's been thought of before or it's only iterative. And so I think being an entrepreneurista is, is about it is about that perseverance and that building that resilience muscle, um, given that that's going to be, I think, what is most important through times of inevitable tumult in your, in your company. 
Leslie, thank you so much for joining me. Where can everyone find and follow you? Yeah, come check us out. You can go to our our website, which is dressanomaly.com or just check us out on Instagram, which is my personal favorite because it's just this endless content of happy brides and happy weddings. And I love seeing the the breadth and depth of, of both customers and design. So that's at anomaly, A-N-O-M-A-L-I-E. Well, thank you again. I'm Courtney, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneurs. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.